I am, of course, one of many preachers climbing into their pulpits this morning on Easter, hoping to capture the miraculous spirit of Jesus' resurrection with mere words. Some of us naturally would do a better job of it than others, but it's not a contest. (laughs) And I hope I can make a worthy effort. It seems to me that resurrection is all about hope, really. Hope against hope. Hope for some kind of triumph or victory against all odds. Now, the Gospel of John, like all of the Gospels, has its biases. John features this nameless character, for instance, that's only ever referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved, more commonly called the beloved disciple among theologians and preachers. And John always seems to favor this beloved disciple. At the Last Supper, he sits next to Jesus and even reclines on him. While hanging on the cross, Jesus tells the beloved disciple to take care of his mother, Mary. At one point, the other disciples complain about this guy following them around all over the place, to which Jesus replies, somewhat defensively, if I want him around, what's it to you? Now, in fact, at the end of John's gospel, the author claims to be none other than this beloved disciple, which explains quite a lot. And he's portrayed so favorably over and over again, and it happens again when this disciple and Simon Peter race to Jesus' tomb upon learning that his body has gone missing. Naturally, The beloved disciple wins the race, so zealous is he in his faith. But does he really triumph, or does he just leave Peter behind? Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. And we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciple set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings there, and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Friends, please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. And may they be in keeping with the teachings 
of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I'm not especially competitive by nature. I mean, yeah, if I'm playing a game, naturally I like to win, but I don't really care if I lose. This temperament did not serve me well during my brief stint on the track team in high school. I really had no business being there in the first place. Track and field is a proving ground for athletes who want to push themselves to their physical limits. Folks who revel in burning muscles, their blood dancing to ever higher tempos as sweat spills from their pores. The rhythmic pounding of feet on the track, the wind in their hair as they leap over hurdles or vault high in the air. The whistle of the javelin as it sails through the sky. These adrenaline-fueled moments are their stock and trade, the stuff that makes them feel alive. Me? Not so much. I've been talked into joining by a guy in my art class, but I was way out of my depth. These people were serious contenders. They got up at 5 o'clock in the morning and ran around the neighborhood while I was sound asleep. They trained every day after school, and they kept meticulous records of their best time and distance. I realized pretty quickly that I'd made a mistake in signing up for this, but my mother had already bought a $200 pair of running sneakers, so I felt compelled to keep up the act. In fact, that's why I'm still preaching after all these years. I already bought the shoes. I knew that I didn't have the endurance to be a long-distance runner, nor the speed to compete with the sprinters. But I reasoned that the sprints were short, and if I was going to lose the race, I might as well lose it quickly. <laughs> so that's where I found myself, competing against faster athletes that were actually determined to win. I can remember crossing the finish line dead last as the guy with the stopwatch tried to tell me my time. Don't care, I said breathlessly, waving him off and leaving him more than a little befuddled. But you know, looking back, I wish I had done things differently. I'd sort of been railroaded into this absurd situation, and I was going to lose any race that I ran because I was entirely out of my element. This was a contest that I could not win. You know, in the first Rocky movie, Rocky knows that he can't beat Apollo Creed, the world boxing champion, in the ring. So he sets a different goal for himself, to last as many rounds as possible. And in the end, while he loses the fight, he achieves what he sets out to accomplish. He wins on his own terms. And that's what I wish I had done. You know, rather than trying to make a vain attempt to win the race, I should have set my own goal should have tried to win on my own terms. For instance, I could have raced in a potato sack, and I'd have been the first one to cross the finish line in a potato sack. Probably the first one in the history of Orville H. Platt High School's track team. That's gotta be some kind of record. It's gotta be worth something. Or, you know, I could have tried to run as slowly as possible. 
just run in slow motion when everyone takes off at the starting gun. It would be like in the movies, you know, like chariots of fire, just running slowly, make everyone sit there and watch me until I finally get to the finish line, make the whole thing as awkward as possible. That's a contest I can win. I do it up here every week. Now in this Easter story from the Gospel of John, we find Simon Peter and the beloved disciple engaged in a foot race to the empty tomb. Mary Magdalene has reported that the stone has been rolled away and she thinks that someone has stolen Jesus' body. Naturally, the disciples are alarmed and they race to the scene as quickly as possible. But here's the thing, they're running together at first, right? And then the other guy starts to outrun Peter as if it's a competition to see who can get there first. He turns it into a race. But I don't think Peter is having it. I mean, it's a heck of a time for fun and games, isn't it? Imagine if someone has just desecrated your best friend's grave and your other friend says, last one there's a rotten egg and slaps you on the back and takes off running. I'd be like, what is wrong with you? I've heard it said that you can call yourself a leader, but if no one's following you, then you're just taking a walk. It also takes two to race. And I don't think Peter's even trying to win. That's why he goes right into the empty tomb while the other guy stops at the finish line. Looks like I got here first, the other disciple might have boasted. Don't care, Peter might have replied as he descends into the tomb. I'm being creative with the text, I realize that, but it's an apt metaphor, I think, for Jesus. Because much like Peter, Jesus isn't even trying to win the race that's been set before him. People want him to be something that he's not. Many of the Jews living under the merciless boots of the Romans want a Messiah who is going to fight, start a revolution, a warrior, a conqueror who would chase Pontius Pilate and his legions out of Jerusalem, out of Palestine, out of the Levant, all the way back to Rome, if necessary. But that's a fight that Jesus can't win, not without compromising everything that he stands for. If winning requires acts of violence, acts of war, then Jesus would rather lose the game, lose his life. So he plays by a different set of rules. Now, being the father of young children, I play a lot of games. As for my youngest son, Levi, Monopoly has been his game of choice as of late. The cutthroat competition where you monopolize real estate, utilities, and railroads and the effort to bankrupt the other players. Just out of curiosity, how many of you have played Monopoly? A show of hands? Yeah, okay, most of you. How many of you enjoy playing Monopoly? Can I ask you why? <laughs> Unlike most board games, Monopoly wasn't even designed to be fun. It was actually designed in 1903 by a progressive feminist named Lizzie Magie who wanted to illustrate the dangers of wealth inequality. It's a practical demonstration of the present system of land grabbing, she writes, 
with all of its usual outcomes and consequences. It contains all the elements of success and failure in the real world, and the object is the same as the human race in general seems to have, the accumulation of wealth. You see, the problem with monopoly is that once you start to fall behind, which can happen pretty quickly, it's almost impossible to win. Once the other player begins to monopolize the board, buying up property and charging rent for every space you land on, it's already over. And everything depends on the roll of the dice. The ultimate winner is already decided, reads an article in Insider Magazine. It's just a matter of when they will obliterate the competition. Players can hang on until their very last dollar is gone and everything is mortgaged, but nothing can really bring you back from the inevitable loss. Once you start to lose, there's really no hope of victory. There is no miraculous resurrection in the game of Monopoly. I personally find it all a little depressing, despite the quirky game pieces and the delightful schadenfreude that comes with seeing your opponent get sent to jail, even if those with the means can buy their way out. It's a little too on the nose, you know, a little too true to life. A zero-sum game where one person wins and everyone else loses. It's not enough that we succeed, Roger Waters grumbled on his latest album. We still need others to fail. I was at a Barnes & Noble bookstore a couple of weeks ago, looking at board games, trying to find, you know, something else to play. And I found an entire section that was called Fear and Foreboding. It was for games with an ostensibly horror-themed vibe, like Zombicide and Arkham Horror. But they'd gotten the shelves mixed up. And beneath the Fear and Foreboding placard, the shelves were filled with titles like Tic-Tac-Toe, Checkers, and of course, Monopoly. Which is funny, because fear and foreboding is exactly what I feel every time Levi says, hey, Dad, can we play Monopoly? <laughs> fear and foreboding indeed. Monopoly is the kind of contest that society expects us to engage in, a zero-sum endeavor that favors exploitation over cooperation, animosity over generosity, schadenfreude over loving God. Sorry, I couldn't think of anything else that rhymes with schadenfreude. <laughs> this is a game that only ends, really, when the board becomes unlivable, too expensive, crippled by poverty and debt. And if we're comparing it to the real world, even the board itself is in danger of collapsing. All of the fake money and little tin cars and top hats tumbling down. It's a race to the bottom a game that we cannot hope to win. But if we're following Jesus, we can choose to play a different game. Last Saturday, we had an Easter egg hunt here at the church. Many of you were there. It was a welcome reprieve from another round of Monopoly, but more importantly, it was such a different experience. It didn't feel competitive because there were plenty of eggs for everyone. Our staff also gave the youngest kids a head start, as opposed to much of society where the vulnerable are left behind. 
And best of all, I saw this one girl actually giving away the eggs that she'd already found to some of the younger kids, which my son took advantage of. He was following her all over the church. She (laughs) left her eggs on the ground. But you know, it was a different kind of game, a brief glimpse into a different kind of world. One of the writers that I follow shares the following story about his own childhood. As a supposedly gifted kid, he writes, psychologists and teachers immediately started me on this bizarre diet of games. But they weren't really games. They were exercises in zero-sum logic. Only one kid could win. I recoiled. I didn't want to play these games. They struck me as wrong. Why couldn't we play games where everyone could win? They were trying to teach me a lesson, mold me, into a certain kind of person. I didn't want to become him. They labeled me difficult. Don't cry for me, see the point. From the day American kids are born, this belief is beaten into them. Only the strong survive. Sometimes it feels like we're all in this dog-eat-dog contest that we can't win, hopeless in the face of world-spanning predicaments that can't be solved. And you know, if we keep on playing the same old game by the same old rules, where only the strong survive, I don't know if they can be solved. The strong will take, the weak will suffer, the board will be dominated as it has always been until there's nothing left. But friends, maybe resurrection is not about triumph in the competitive sense, not about victory in the worldly sense. Maybe it's about surrender, right? That's what this little girl did when she surrendered her Easter eggs. That's what Jesus does, surrendering his life to convey a teaching that lives on. And if we're prepared to take Jesus seriously, to take that teaching seriously, to take the idea of resurrection and redemption seriously, then maybe we could resurrect this world. And that means surrendering the race to the bottom. Refuse to play this absurd game. Surrender the need to hoard resources and monopolize the board. Surrender old hatreds. Surrender prejudice. Surrender our arms. Surrender the rat race. Slow down and help the ones that are left behind. Surrender our beliefs about what is and is not possible. I mean, we're all here to celebrate a man rising from the dead, right? That's a good start. It's all anathema, I know. It's cultural heresy. That's why it got Jesus killed. That's why it gets a lot of preachers climbing into their pulpits into trouble. And that's why I believe it's true. Therein lies my hope. I don't have to win the race. I don't have to run faster than everyone else. I just have to walk with Jesus, who is risen. And I don't know about you, friends, but that is a little more my speed. And now as you go forth from this place, on this glorious Easter morning. May you be filled with the love of God, the power 
of the Holy Spirit and the promise of Jesus Christ, who is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen.